and hit record here and here. All right. On uh, three, two, one. We are speaking with the uh, one and only Chris Hillman. Uh, of course, the new memoir is called Time Between My Life as a Bird, a Burrito Brother, and Beyond. And as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Chris. Uh, comment allez-vous? How are you? Fine. Comment allez-vous? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Yes. They're cold uh, up in Montreal. Eh, yeah, listen, it's, it's not exactly San Diego where my heart actually lives. I mean, I've been to that place 28 times, but... Uh, yeah, no, I yeah, know. it's 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 chilly, and, and we've got uh, Alan Niven joining us uh, as always. Alan is out in Arizona, so the both of you can can tell me about how warm and comfy you are while I sit here freezing. Sort of, <laughs> not as warm as we would want today, but whatever. Hey, it's fine. Uh, Alan, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you both. All right, uh, there you go. So let's let's get into this uh, to this book here. It's it's a story of. Um, perseverance it's a story of uh, all kinds of great events in your life uh you wanted to leave this for your grandkids is the one quote that i saw that really stuck out uh talk to me about wanting to tell your story to the younger generation uh basically that was just as as i said it i mean i was really started out writing this to to leave to my children and then grandchildren which hadn't arrived yet um, and now we have two grandchildren. So that was the original idea. And then a couple of things I wanted to clarify that I felt were uh, badly um, written about mostly about the birds and the Burrito Brothers. It wasn't too much about anything other other bands. It was <laughs> pretty good. But uh, there are a couple uh, misquotes and things like that. that it wasn't the end of the world if I didn't clarify that. But I felt, well, I was there. I might as well. And I remember it all. So nothing terrible, but yeah, there it is. So uh, all of a sudden I had a manuscript. Um, uh, Mitch ha had it on the shelf for uh, a year or two. And I, I finally, I said to my wife, I think, I said, we think, I think we should get a, an agent and see if we can get this published. I don't know. What are we doing with this? And, and then I, I meet Scott Bomar from BMG and he had heard I was writing a memoir and wanted to read a little of it. And, um, he called me back. I sent him two chapters. He called me immediately. He said, let's talk. I want to, I want to uh, publish this. I said, really? I said, I'm not going to give you a Led Zeppelin meets the Rolling Stones at, in the alley uh, book. He said, I don't want that kind of book. I well, said, well, that's not the way I really lived. But I thought, I'll do respect to them both, both bands, of course. I, I uh, thought you were going to, uh, to, to first call the book uh, Chris Hillman, My Life as a Beetle, but they rejected that idea and said, yeah, right. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Alan, I'm going to turn over the, the first question to you because, you know, listen, I was born in 68, so all this stuff sort of came before me and by the time I got to it, you know, but Alan, you lived the birds. You were there. Um, go ahead and ask Chris that first question. Uh, well, there's the problem. Um, for me, the idea of talking to a bird, talking to Chris, is... There's a, a little bit overwhelming in a way. It makes me a fanboy again because I remember when those records came out and they had a huge impact on my life and my psyche. And I think my first question for Chris would be, did you find the book a chore or was it all long, long ago enough that you could be objective about it and, and not aggravated by certain things? I mean, I get hounded to write a manuscript all the time. 
and I just don't want to deal with it at this point in my life. Um, was it objective? And what was your fondest memory, your highlight in the retrospect? What, what did you look back on and, and say, that moment is the magic moment I would love to relive? Well put. Um, yeah. I was objective, Alan, as best I could be. I, and I wasn't looking to be healed, cured, or uh, or any of the above. Uh, everything in my life was pretty good. I mean, I must say, uh, I didn't have any uh, long-running uh, animosities towards anybody or, or, or any problems with anybody I'd worked with, living or dead. I'd sort of given that up. I said, what's the point, you know? And, and I looked, tried to relate in the book everyone's better parts, you know, and I had issues with Graham Parsons, but I loved the guy. I mean, I really had a close connection with him as songwriters together. And as we were driving up to the house this morning to, to get ready to do the interview with you guys, I hear uh, on Dwight Yoakam's uh, XM Sirius radio show, he played uh, the Flying Brito Brothers doing If You Gotta Go. It's a Bob Dylan song. I forgot what a great track it is. Real fast and full of energy. And Graham sings really good on it, I got to tell you. So... Uh, I'm listening to that. I said, you know, that was a great moment for the Brito brothers. But the greatest moment for me, Alan and Mitch, was uh, I think after all the years I'd been playing, mostly as a musician in an ensemble setting. I wasn't trying to be Bruce Springsteen or, or Van Morrison. I really wasn't good enough in the early days to ever attempt to uh, assume that role. But I did learn my craft in about the 1986 and I had the Desert Rose Band going, and we had our second single out, uh, went to number three on the Billboard charts. That was a moment. And I actually said to my wife, I said, this isn't supposed to happen. I have a successful record that I wrote and sang lead on, and I'm running the band. <laughs> Normally, I'm one of the band guys who's trying to keep the maniacs at bay, visually. Visualize me keeping Crosby and and whoever at bay in a band or Steve and whatever, but <laughs> I love him. I just said that, but um, uh, that was a great moment for me. All of a sudden, my God, I can't believe I have a, a single that I, I actually wrote. And then we went on, we had a bunch of successful records in the Desert Rose Band. Mind you, a lot of people don't know who the Desert Rose Band are, except for the country audiences from that era. But every band was great, you guys. I know that sounds corny, but I mean, the but birds. they were. But they were. The, 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 the birds. It was... Uh, Ahead, Desert Alan. Rose Band, as well, mid mid to late eighties, was it not? Yeah, mid to late eighties, early nineties, we yeah. we quit. I want to um, um I want to ask you this, if I can, just real quick, because you know we're in a day and age in twenty twenty one where we 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 don't talk as much about bands and we talk more about brands. Uh, and you were in Scottsville, Scottsville Squirrel Barkers, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and. The names always struck me as bizarre. Was was there any consideration given into the branding of those bands? And, and how do those names sort of strike you now? Were they sort of tongue-in-cheek and funny? Or do you look back and go, oh, God, we should have just been called Kiss. It would have been so much simpler. It's very funny. I like those names. You know, with, with the ones that were funny to me were in the 70s when I was in – first I was in Souther, Hillman, Fure, and then I was in McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman. And then later in the 90s, I was in uh, Rice, Rice, Hillman, and Peterson. I said, and I used to do this on stage. I said, every, for a, a while there, I was in uh, bands that sounded like law firms. 
I mean, it had no creativity at all behind the name. Now you got to tell me, you got to admit the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers is a cool name. And it was a very cool band in that we were all so young and attacked it. We attacked that music. <laughs> you know, we loved it. And, and uh, um, the Flying Breeder Brothers also uh, was a great name. And Graham, I think there was another a bunch of guys that he knew in the East Coast that were using that name. And I didn't think I even mentioned that in the book. It's fine. And and they, they weren't doing anything. They were almost a blues band. And they said, take it, use it. So we used it. We actually considered, I think I put it in the book, calling ourselves the Alabama Sheiks. Now, that sounded good to me, too. But then I went, no, that's a blues band name. It was a good blues band name, but we weren't a blues band. That's yeah. hilarious. That's hilarious. Uh, before I go, I turn it over to Alan again. Let me just ask you this, uh, because like I said, I love visiting San Diego. And then when you go to San Diego, of course, you cross the border, you go to Tijuana. Uh, in the book, you describe that one time where you crossed the border and you picked up your first guitar for $10. Um, talk to me about about that moment and, and how life changing was it? I mean, it, it sort of was like an innocuous kind of thing, like, hey, we're going to go to Tijuana, like everybody in San Diego does once in a while, and I picked up a guitar, but but yet it changed your life, correct? I think at that point in my life, Mitch, I wanted to play guitar, and I didn't have a lot of money, and my mom, bless her heart, she says, look, we can find you a decent instrument down in Tijuana. I said, really? And she says, yeah, let's just go down and see what's in there. So I, we go down, we go into a couple of stores, and on the walls, a couple of guitars. It was $10. This was 1960. One or two, and so it actually played. I actually learned chords on it. It was great, and then it sort of collapsed about a six months later. It actually turned into a welcome a, to Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> it was it just completely warped out on me. But she did make me this wonderful said, "If you stick with this, uh, I'll help you get another guitar." Which meant I might put in a third of the money, which she did. Actually, I wanted to get a Goya after, I don't know, God knows why. So I, I go find a Goya nylon string guitar. Uh, and it was okay, except I find bluegrass. I discover bluegrass. You don't play a Goya guitar in a bluegrass band. Do not do that. You play a steel string Martin Dreadnought D28 or D18. So, of course, I put steel strings on the Goya, thinking, I'm, I'm there. I'm ready to go here. Got my pick. I'm ready to go. And that, that guitar lasted about 48 hours, where the neck took on that looked like my initial of my first name, Chris, C. It became a C. I'm showing you. You can't see me. But uh, I said, okay. And then from there, I find this beautiful, this incredible Epiphone uh, used Dreadnought guitar. They don't even make them anymore. I wish I had this guitar. 50 bucks. I bought it from this man. I was in high school. But then at least I was on the right track. You know, I made a couple bozo moves there on the guitar. Well, you, you, definitely were, you definitely were on the right track. I mean, here we are, you know, 60 years later uh, talking about this event and, 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 and your music. Uh, Alan, go ahead. I, 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 you know, Alan is a big fan, so I, this is a great moment. Go ahead. Well, Chris, I have to chuckle when you say that you were under... Uh, so many banners that sounded like law firms. But of course, back in those days, Chris, I'm sure you remember, putting your names out there was what we contemporarily call branding because you were in such extraordinary lineups. I mean, you know, just off the top of my head, I know you played with people like uh, 
Oh, well, obviously, you know, the Roger McGuinn's, Bernie Leiden, Tom Petty, Gene Clark. Um, let me stop right there. Do you have any special memory about an album called No Other, which to me was um, an album that didn't connect nearly as strongly as it should have? Um, you know, Alan, I... I would have to pull that out, and I might do that after this conversation. And listen, I have to remember what's on there. That was a good record. Uh, and oh, no, it was a great record. Yeah, and Gene, uh, unfortunately, Gene, would he would do these incredible records, and he, he was such a prolific songwriter. He'd come up with such beautiful lyric, poetry, poetic lyric. and uh, But he'd always end up shooting himself in the foot uh, in regards to after making this great record and turning it in, uh, somehow it would get lost in the translation of promotion, of going out on the road and promoting it and all that. And he, he had all these issues about traveling and uh, this and that. So unfortunately, but that was a good record. He made a lot of good records. He made a lot of good records. But I have to listen and see what's on there. Most of them, Alan, uh, most of his albums I worked on. Either I played mandolin or I played bass. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, but I don't know if I played on Northern. i got to go look that up. That's a... Uh, yeah. There's so many, there's so much, so much good music back in the day. Since since we mentioned Tom Petty, real quick, um, back uh, just before he passed away, uh, you you were talking to Tom about maybe getting the birds back together. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and and the influence that Tom Petty had on you, or or the friendship with Tom that he could have actually convinced you to to do it. Well, I I always said, and I even told. Uh, Roger McGuinn and David Crosby, I said, you know, there's only one guy that could actually get us physically into the studio. And who? Tom Petty. And Roger says, yeah. Well, Tom and Roger were very close friends for a long time. They actually toured together with Bob Dylan. And and Roger was very, very close with Tom. And I got to know Tom during our recording. I knew him, but I didn't know him that well. But yes, he could have. He was the guy that could have made that happen if indeed that's where we wanted to go with it. Working with him was a, a joy. He uh, he was a great producer, and you know I always felt I you know talk about Alan, talk about being in awe of somebody. I'd be in talking to Tom, and I'd be going, my God, and he was so humble. I just couldn't you know I just I never could understand how this man re maintained this humility. Excuse me, humility in the position he occupied. Uh, but I would be in awe of him sometimes. And Chris, it reminds me of uh, something that Carlos Santana said one day when I uh, had the impertinence to ask him, how do you keep it real with all the adulation you have? And I don't think most people in this country realize that he's an even bigger star in South America and Europe than most people understand. And he came back with the most delightful reply. He said, I take my own trash out. <laughs> I love it. You know, there, speaking of Tijuana, uh, Carlos Santana grew up in Tijuana. As yeah. Far as I read. yeah. But anyway, no, uh, Tom was a delight. And I always felt, Alan and Mitch, I thought, gosh, am I, does he like this record? I mean, I hope I'm... You know, and I talked, I got really close with his uh, engineer, Ryan Lulate. And I actually said to Ryan after the record, I said, Tom Lange, he says, listen, he loved your record. He just wanted more drums. 
he loved drums and some of them were sort of more folky, but that was okay because Tom loved all kinds of music. I said, yeah. So anyway, it was a joy. It really was. I was, I was really uh, just broken up when he passed. We were in Nashville when that. Let me tell you, we all were. You know, I yeah. remember very, very uh, prominently the first time I ever visited Florida in 1979, and uh, I was walking through a mall and I heard the stuff from Refugee and and you know, don't do me like that. And I was like, who, who is this guy? What is this music? And that's how that came into my existence. And and ever since, I was like, wow, this guy. And of course, all through the 80s, MTV videos and all. What a talent. and What an incredible loss. Um, but I know we only have 20 minutes. So let me just ask you this. Uh, the, overall, the theme of the book is is redemption. And I just want to say, I just, I just want to ask, redemption from what? And do you feel redeemed at this point? Was it cathartic? Did, did you get everything you needed to get out where you can just say, okay, I'm at peace with whatever's happened. And I know, listen, in the music business, there's been lawsuits and there's been hate and there's been this. And But by writing this memoir, do you sort of go, okay, we can close this book now. I'm redeemed. Well, We're good. Yeah. To some degree. Now, I was angry at my father for 30 years. Uh, really, as a uh, suicide can do that. Uh, we were abandoned. He was a good guy. I could never figure out why did he do this. But then I put connected the dots, and he was under a lot of stress. And he was such—he was a sweet man. I wish he had stuck around long enough to see what I'd accomplished. But um, that wasn't hard to write about because at the, by that point, when I started writing about him. Uh, the suicide, I had come to uh, at peace with him. So it wasn't hard to do that. It was cathartic to write this book. Um, what was I going to say? Um, redemption, um, in a way, uh, I think getting rid of that anger was a, was a redeeming thing. That helped immensely. And uh, I also took on a, a way before I started writing the book, I said, you know, I'm, I am not going to hold grudges for the rest of my life. I mean, yeah, there were people that were not easy to work with. And I probably wasn't either. But, you know, I never was uh, out there trying to be king of the mountain either. So whatever. But it worked itself out. Uh, I felt I felt I got and you got it right, Mitch. It is about redemption. It's about also picking yourself up off the ground with whatever you're after in life. Uh, to a certain point, you want to keep going and doing it and achieve that goal. And sometimes you'll get, get a strong message, divinely, probably divinely sent, that you're not supposed to be going that way. And you'll know after trying for a long time. But uh, I always felt I was going in the right direction. And when an opportunity would open up, it, if it looked right, I would I would go for it. You know, uh, I stuck with the burritos of Mirror Brothers a long time and when Stephen Stills and I met up and he says, what do you think about putting a band together? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it sounds, and I immediately said, let's do it. And not even knowing what his situation was. And then I realized later he was taking that hiatus from Crosby and Nash. And for me, the Brito's had done what it could do. And we had a great time in Manassas. So it was always something coming up. There really was. was. By the way, now, now that you mentioned everything sounded like a law firm, I'm going to have that stuck in my head forever because I'm looking at the uh, McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman thing and I'm going, yeah, I need to hire them to do my taxes. That sounds terrific. Uh, um, 
I, I was going to uh, go ahead. That um, we find our own redemption by forgiving others and learning to forgive and and, and to dispense with anger. Well, well put. Yep. Learning to forgive. Yes. A yep. tough one. And and um, humility is a tough one. A tough virtue to grasp hold of. And learning to forgive. That's very well put, Alan. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me, uh, and then uh, I'll bring it home on this. In terms of uh, new music, where are we in terms of maybe putting out some a new album later this year or next year? Are, are you still in the mood to be creative and, and put out new music? I'm getting there. And I, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm, I mean, I am getting there. But there was a time in the first couple months of this lockdown we had to go through in california i mean i just didn't pick the guitar up and not out of being bitter i just didn't pick it up and then i said i gotta play some so i started practicing every day hour half hour maybe if i get an hour and good um i'm starting to lean that way but we'll see what happens um i don't know i'm, I'm not sure yet uh i am thinking about doing another book, but not a music book, obviously, and we've done that. So, <laughs> uh, But I, I'm thinking of doing something else with my daughter. My daughter and I wrote a wonderful um, uh, uh, lullaby years ago when she was 12. She's 36 now, but anyway, we'll see what happens. <laughs> time, time flies. Uh, Alan, uh, yeah. one last question, and then uh, we'll say uh, thank you to Chris. Chris, an absolute pleasure for me, by the way, but uh, I'll, I'll let Alan have one more here. Go for it. Absolutely. Uh, well, one last question. I mean, I, th I think my last question is, one of these days, possibly we could put it on the calendar that we could make not just one dinner, but three or four dinners, because I would just love to sit and hear you tell the stories from the beginning to now. I understand, and that would be great. And when I do get on the road, Alan, Part of what I was going to do, I was just going to go out with Herb Peterson and John Jorgensen, who, you know, I mean, we've been working together off and on uh, since the Desert Rose Band, since 25, 30 years. But I was going to go out with them as a trio. John would probably plug in, but the rest of us would just play acoustic. And I was going to read from the book and then add little anecdotes that I didn't put in the book and embellish whatever I had read to the audience in that sense, not to get over wordy with them, but that was part of the show is, is songs and stories and, and presenting it like that. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. That, that, that I, have, is... uh, I have, I had, to, I really had to trim this thing down. I had so much stuff in there. And when we made the publishing deal, I, I actually, as I said, I re rewrote it, trimmed it down. Yeah. I can imagine. I, I, I'm, I'm sure the uh, David Crosby chapters by themselves could have taken up, the, <laughs> could have taken up yeah. an entire book. But there you go. Uh, time Diary, between. Excuse me. Sorry. I was going to say a time between my life as a bur burrito brother and beyond uh, by Chris Hillman. Uh, great memoir, worth picking up. Uh, check it out, folks. And uh, Chris. An absolute pleasure. You know, you, you look back in the history of music and you see Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and the Birds and the Beatles and you hear these names and, and, and they just are larger than life. And to, to be able to speak to you today has just been an absolute, absolute thrill. So as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you, Mitch. It's very kind. And Alan, I thank you both for having me on your show. I mean, I appreciate it. I appreciate it believe me. Thank you. So I'm your guest. You're not... 
You don't say thank you, Chris. I say thank you to you two for having me on your show. Yes, and let's do this again soon. When you hit the road, please uh, get back yeah. into contact. I'll do another one. And whatever you put out, uh, it doesn't matter. New music. Uh, I don't know. You're, you're announcing lunch. Uh, come on back. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much, you guys, and have a wonderful day, I guess. We have to say that because we want to, we want everything to settle down, don't we? Yes, thank yes. you. Yeah, well, it's not we happening It's not happening settle. in Quebec anytime soon, but hey. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could be positive about California, you know. But anyway, I, I'll see you all at some point down the road. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll be in Texas or in Florida. That's the only place. <laughs> I hope so. I hope you come. Merci. Cheers.